You are listening to the online sermon ministry of Calvary Baptist Church in the Dalles, Oregon. Thank you for joining us as we search Holy Scripture together in order to edify the church, proclaim the gospel, and glorify God. Amen. If you have a Bible this morning, we'll be in Luke 15 and 16. So go ahead and turn there. It's going to be a bit windy today. Hopefully my notes are on my iPad. Otherwise, it's just going to be a freestyle moment. And we'll see how that goes. So if you've been online watching or here for the last couple weeks, you know we've been in a series uh, called First Fruits as we're talking about generosity and what it looks like to be generous with our money, what it looks like to give and why to give. And we're going to wrap that up this morning. I'm excited to talk to you about it, but I just want to do a tiny bit of review as we jump in. So two weeks ago, when uh, our friend Ryan LeBreton kicked it off, he reminded us, hey, this isn't what I'm saying. This is what scripture says. And so it was a little bit of, of like, hey, hey, don't, don't kill the messenger, right? Like we're trying to discern from the word what God says about money. And in fact, he says quite a bit about it, right? And so that's, that's what we're doing. And he did a great job of talking about uh, this concept of fruit, first fruits, that everything we have belongs to God. And yet then God calls us to give back to him uh, as an act of faith. And, and that in that, we understand what God is like, that he is generous, he gives us all things, and then we give in return. And Ryan actually gave us a lot of helpful stats uh, that are a little bit embarrassing when we look at how much we have versus how much we give. Last week, Bob got to speak about, and I got to watch it on YouTube. I wasn't here last week. I had the privilege of speaking at, at our old church, the church that we planted uh, for the installation of their new senior pastor. So it was just awesome. One of the best uh, moments of my uh, last 30 years of ministry and uh, loved every minute of it. So we were watching Bob on, on the five coming back down here, coming home. And Bob talked about the motivation of giving. And so Ryan kicked us off with the faith of giving or the command we should give. And then Bob said, well, let's look at why we should give. Here's some of the motivation behind it. And I sort of want to wrap that up uh, on the, fl the end of it, just going, and now let's also look at some reasons maybe why we don't. Why don't we give? And so if God's commanded it and he gives us clear motivation for it, uh, why don't we? And so Ryan also spoke primarily from the Old Testament. Bob led us out of a, a New Testament epistle, a letter to a church. I'm going to go to the Gospels and we're going to look at a parable of Jesus. And he gives a lot of parables about money. And so that's where we come into Luke 15 and 16. Why don't we give? Now, I know you're saying, well, I give. So, and many of you give, right? And so don't hear me saying like, you're not generous, you don't give. But just the general truth of giving's hard for us. Giving is hard for us. And why? Why is it hard? It's generally true. Some of you are profoundly generous. You abound in giving. And yet I would bet you weren't born that way right? That that is something that God has done in you, has transformed your heart. And so at, at the base level, at the starting point, most of us are not generous. My kids had to be taught to share, right? They didn't come into the world desiring to share. They desired to keep and to take. And so they learn how to be generous by learning the concept of other people, right? And so it's a thing that we all learn and grow in, and it's a work of God transforming us. And so in all of that, remembering that, that in our flesh, we're all sinners, even the most generous, I want, I'm just going to give you, 
and it may sound a little rough, I'm just going to give you a, tr- a principle I think is true. We are all financial sinners. I am a financial sinner. In fact, why don't you say it? Say, I am a financial sinner. Try it out. Just see how it feels. Let it roll around in there. None of us are immune, no matter how generous you are. I don't think any of us in this life, in this culture, are immune to the trappings or the temptation of money. And often we sin in those areas, whether it's a failure to give generously or simply just coveting or wanting or controlling those things that really aren't ours. So we're, we're financially in our flesh. We're prone to be financial sinners. It's one reason why we don't give. I won't make you say this next one out loud, but I think I challenge you to think about it. And I think I could prove it pretty easily. Maybe one of the reasons that we don't give generously as we could or as generously as we could, maybe it's because we love money. Now, I'm not going to ask you to say, I love money. Just think about it. In, in your heart, in your flesh, in this world, could it be that we love money? So as Christians in America, just a deeply blessed corner of the world, in fact, profoundly blessed beyond most of the world, right? We don't think of ourselves as rich. Like, I don't, I don't just think I'm rich. I think Bill Gates is rich. Bezos is rich, right? But in, in comparison to the world, I'm in the top 1%, and so are you. We're, we're at the top. We are profoundly blessed. And we live in a culture that just has real needs around money, right? That is how you buy a house, and a house here costs way more than a house in Sierra Leone, right? And that's how you put your kids through college, and that's how you pay your bills and put food on the table. And so it, it, money is woven into the fabric of how we live. It's just part of it. And we're quick, I think, often, and maybe too quick to go, oh yeah, money's not evil, right? Maybe you've said it. Money's not evil. It's just a tool. It's the love of money that is the root of all evil. Have you ever said that? I've said it. And it's true, right, that money is a tool and money itself is not intrinsically evil. And the love of money is the source of all kinds of evil and is profoundly dangerous. And so it's true and it would, it's helpful and it would be even more helpful if we didn't love money. So it might be a truism, but as we look in the mirror and expose our own hearts, I think sometimes we have to go like, hmm, yeah, maybe. Maybe I do love money. Maybe there's part of my heart and part of the way I handle money that God still needs to transform. Let me prove it to you. Just generally true, if you're the exception to the rule, I'm super happy. I'm glad you're generous. I'm glad you don't love money. In fact, I aspire to be like you. But just think about this. Our authoritative text, right? Scripture. God's word to us holds authority over it. How does scripture generally speak about money? Not always, but generally. I, I would present that we have a lot of verses that just, where scripture just goes, there's, money is not a thing to be trusted in. There's a deep distrust of money. I'll rattle a few off for you. How hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God, Luke 18. Those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmless desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. And it's not just a philosophical truth. He says some people eager for money 
have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Paul writing to Timothy, this, he says, the desire for money has shipwrecked many a Christian. A person of faith is not immune to the love of money. Proverbs 30, give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me only my daily bread. Don't make me rich, and please don't make me poor. I will be content with my daily bread. Otherwise, the proverb writes, I may have too much and disown you and say, who's the Lord? I don't have a need for God. Or I may be, become poor and steal and so dishonor the name of my God. And we could do dozens of those, right? So the Bible says and condemns the de desire to have more money, to want wealth, to be eager for money. It says, just let's be content with just only my daily bread. And despite knowing all those things and believing all of those things, most of us want more money, don't we? we knowing how difficult it is for the rich to inherit the kingdom of God, we still want to become rich. Hot cultural reference here. So Fiddler on the Roof, cutting edge movie. If you haven't seen it, you need to. It's great. 1971, so even older than me. I know that's hard to believe. Uh, it's a musical. It's a great film. It won three Academy Awards. It was nominated for Best Picture, Best Actor, Best Supporting Actor. It's awesome. Unless you hate musicals, then it's not. Uh, but it's a great movie. And if you remember Tevya, right? Remember the song, If I Were a Rich Man. Now, only, raise your hand. I just need to know if I need to stop this reference. <laughs> okay. Only one person remembers it. Moving on. He sings a song about money, if he were rich. And even when his friends tell him money is the curse, money is a, a, the root and a curse of, of the world's evil, to have money is the curse of the world, he says, well, then may the Lord smite me with it and may I never recover. Right? He knows it. He gets it. He still wants it. At the end of his, of his song, he, he says this. It's a profound lyric. He turns to God and he says, Lord, who made the lion and the lamb? He's poor. He's, he's wrestling through what it means to be poor and to take care of his family and all this. And so he says, God, you made, you made the lion and the lamb. You decreed I should be what I am. Would it spoil some vast eternal plan if I were a wealthy man? He's like, I get it, God. You called me to this. I'm poor. This is like how most people live, and I understand that it's not good. But would it, God, would, I mean, would it really mess your plans up for, for me to be wealthy? I, I can see myself in that. I can hold that up as a mirror to my own soul. Like, yeah, yeah, sure, wealth makes problems. And many, many people struggle with wealth, you know, but that's a problem I wouldn't mind navigating. <laughs> And so Jesus does this with his parables around money. He, he gives us some, some really difficult, challenging parables and stories around money that you're meant to identify with and see yourself in. And they're meant to illustrate the kingdom of God and, and the surprising nature of the kingdom of God and the shocking values of the kingdom of God and then hold it up like a mirror to you and force you into a moment of crisis. If I am a member of God's kingdom, how then should I live? And so parables like the rich fool who builds bigger barns and storehouses and then says, I'm good, I've done great, I can now retire. I can kick back, relax, eat, drink, and be merry. And then to that man, God says, yeah, but you're gonna die tonight. And so you have laid up and stockhoused all of these worldly riches and they will just be absolutely of no worth to you. And so 
where, where does the economic system of the world and how does money work within someone whose heart is given to the kingdom of God? That's what Jesus wants to challenge us with. And it illustrates the why, why we don't give as generously as we could. That's a great question for you to ask God. And I would encourage you to even ask a brother or a sister who you know and trust, but, but you might just say like, am I generous? You might even just open up your budget and your checkbook. I love that Ryan LeBreton said this as he was processing how he should tithe in a time when he's not making income. He, he opened it up to people he respected and said, what are you speaking to my life? And so you might actually open up your budget with someone who understands the gospel of the kingdom of God and just go, hey, do, do I strike you as generous in these areas? It's a great question to ask the Lord. God, am I generous as you're generous? God, help, help me. Would you root out any of the love of money from my heart? And so it could be that we lack the faith that Ryan spoke about in First Fruits. It could be we lack the motivation Bob spoke about. But beneath all of those things, I do think we're talking about values that we hold that are often in opposition to the values of the kingdom of God. And so that's where we enter into this parable of the dishonest manager in Luke 16. Now, heads up. This is a difficult passage. I've spoken on it before. I wrestled with it all week. Uh, there's vast disagreement. It's probably one of, the, one of the most difficult parables to understand. It says some stuff that's really hard for us to understand, especially as Western-minded thinkers in the 21st century. Uh, but here's, here's something to do, because first of all, many of the parables are difficult. It's kind of the, the point of them, right? To, to challenge you, to scratch your head and go, I don't, I don't get that. And, you read your Bible and you see the many of the people that heard it. They didn't get it. And so God is, through Jesus, in these stories, he is communicating what he is like, what his kingdom is like, and it's challenging to us. And so one of the things that's most helpful in uh, an isolated parable is to look at the very immediate context of it. And so to look up and to look down. And so I've got this parable of the dishonest manager. Where does it land in the teaching of Jesus? Well, if you look up to Luke 15, it's going to be, if you have a red letter Bible, it's going to be all red text. Jesus goes, boom, lost sheep, lost coins, lost son. Parable of the dishonest manager. Keep going below it, the rich man and Lazarus. And so together you can go like, oh, okay, I can see what's going on here. So look at, turn to Luke 15 if you've got a Bible. Jesus is teaching, Luke 15, 1. So Jesus is teaching all the tax collectors and sinners are drawing near to him. So he's teaching tax collectors and sinners. He's, he's sharing with them the truth of the gospel of the kingdom of God. And his disciples are there. And we see that the Pharisees and scribes are also there. So a real mixed crowd. He's teaching them. And the Pharisees and scribes grumble saying, this man, this man, he's supposed to be from God. He's supposed to be the Messiah. This man eats with sinners and tax collectors. He receives them. All right? So, in light of that, Jesus tells them a parable. What man of you having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And then the lost coin. And then the lost son, which you might know by the, the title Prodigal Son. All of these stories are meant to address this accusation of the Pharisees. Jesus is contrasting God's kingdom, God's values with theirs. Their accusation is he's eating with sinners and tax collectors. They're unclean. They're unworthy. They're outside of what it means to be the people of God. Therefore, he can't be from God. 
That's the accusation. You're wasting time with sinners and tax collectors. They are less than, they are unimportant, they are unqualified, they are unclean. And Jesus says, oh, oh yeah, yes. He's not defensive at all. He says, yeah, of, of course I'm doing this. Of course I'm with tax collectors and sinners. Why? Here's three stories to illustrate why. God is like the good shepherd that leaves the 99 to find the one lost sheep. By the way, Pharisees, Jesus says, this brings great joy and rejoicing in the kingdom. In fact, more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who need no repentance. I mean, that's as direct as it can be. That is a shot to these Pharisees and these scribes. God values the least and their repentance and their return to him more than your supposed self-righteousness. It brings him more joy. In fact, everyone will celebrate this in heaven. Lost sinners in repentance to God bring more joy to God than you. It's not subtle, it's direct. Lost coin, same thing. One coin, even though she has nine others, when she finds it, she calls her whole community to celebrate with her. This is what God is like. The prodigal son, God is like a father who in joy runs to his lost son as he returns. Even though his lost son has done great evil, right? Working for and caring with pigs, he's unclean. He would be in this category of sinners and outsiders. And yet God's like the father who, who just throws off all so, social and cultural norms, hikes up his robe and runs and embraces his son. And he throws a huge party and says, come and rejoice with me. What was lost has been found. Three ways of saying the same thing. This is not a waste of time for the Messiah to teach sinners and tax collectors. He is representing the heart of God. And in contrast to that are these religious leaders and their scribes. And the message is, you might be teachers of the law, but you do not understand God's kingdom. And then he turns to his disciples. And here's where we get our story. He turns to the disciples and tells, tells them a parable in front of the Pharisees. They are hearing it. Luke 16, 14. At the end of this, it'll say the Pharisees who were lovers of money heard this story and laughed at Jesus. And so Jesus, knowing all of these things, speaks this story. So even before we can get in, even before we read the parable, just by reading what comes after it and before it, we can go, okay, you know what? Jesus is doing something here that is going to be in contrast to the ways of this world, his kingdom, in contrast to, to the way the Pharisees understand the kingdom of God. His contrast in his kingdom in contrast with the ways of this world. And so here we go. He said also to his disciples, right? Pharisees are grumbling. Jesus turns to his followers, addresses the, the tension, deals with it directly. There was a rich man who had a manager. Now, generally, if you're a first century uh, peasant and you're just following around this rabbi Jesus, trying to figure out what he's about, how, how do you feel about the rich man? How are we inclined to view the rich man? Right? A little suspiciously. He's not our favorite guy. Well, there's a rich man who had a manager. They don't really love managers either. And charges were brought to him that this man, the manager, was wasting his possessions. And he, right, the rich man, called his manager and said to him, And what is this I hear? Turn in the account of your management. You can no longer be manager. So you've got a rich master, an owner, who has a, ma a manager who manages his finances, who's been mismanaging it. The owner hears about it and says, You're fired. Clean out your desk 
And in fact, what happens next in this story is exactly why sometimes in business, when you get fired, like security comes into your office and then they escort you out because a fired, dishonest employee can actually cause quite a bit of trouble in his last day as we're about to see. The manager, verse three says to himself, oh, he's at a crisis. What shall I do? My master is taking the management away from me. I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm ashamed to beg. I'm too proud to beg. My skill set is limited, right? Without this job, I'm, I'm in deep trouble. Verse four, I've decided what to do so that when I'm fired, when I'm removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. Now that's an important shift. Just write that, write that down. He doesn't say, so I need more money because he could have called and what he does, he could have pocketed the money. He could have embezzled, he could have stolen. And he's saying, I'm going to need money. I won't be able to work, but he pursues something different. He recognizes something more valuable than money. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, how much do you owe my master? He said, a hundred measures of oil. He said to him, take your bill, sit down quickly, write 50. Then he said to another, how much do you owe? He said, a hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, take your bill, write 80. Now these, these are massive quantities. This, these are huge outstanding debts. They are not small amounts. So we learn the master is actually very rich to be able to carry such large outstanding debts. And the dishonest manager is doing something that really benefits the debtors. They will now be inclined, they will owe him, they will be inclined to, to offer him and extend hospitality to him. And here's where it gets tricky, right? We, see, we can see the ethics of this, the right and wrong, but parables are not always about teaching right and wrong and ethics, right? This is about the contrast of the kingdom of God with the ways of this world, particularly around money. Verse 8. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. Now, the first time I saw this verse, I, I was just so confused. Is God affirming dishonesty? Is Jesus saying this is a good thing to do? It kind of reads that way at first glance. You got to separate the voices. So Jesus is speaking. Jesus calls the manager dishonest. The character in the story of the rich master calls him shrewd. The, the manager, and you would expect the manager to be furious and to have the man arrested and to uh, get back what he is owed. But the manager kind of goes, oh, all right. I see what you did there. I, I see that. You're gonna have success in this world. You know, you're still fired, but uh, sort of like a game recognizes game kind of thing, as the kids said 20 years ago, not today, right? Like we, the, the rich master sees values, business transactional values that he affirms. He says, yeah, that's shrewd. He commends it. This is, that's how the game works. And likely that is how he's gotten ahead and become so rich in his life is holding some of these and making some of these dishonest transa transactions. So that's just a really helpful distinction for us, right? We, Jesus isn't affirming this. Jesus labels the manager as dishonest. And for us as modern readers, it's really difficult because we go like, that's just really not good. <laughs> We're holding the bad guy up as the example is what, how it feels. Now that can be good, right? Because the world's not black and white and it's good to, for us to think about. But Kenneth Bailey, who's a Middle Eastern scholar, writes this. He says, this is actually a shocking twist to the first century Eastern listener. So the Middle Eastern peasant would love this story, would delight in the manager sticking it to the rich guy, right? It's like a David and Goliath. They're like, oh yeah, good. 
That's great. They delight in that story. And he writes this, the storyteller in the East always has a series of stories about the clever fellow who went out over like the big shot, Mr. Big in the community. The remarkable feature of this parable is that the steward is criticized as unrighteous and called a son of darkness. So the Western, that's us, listener and reader, is surprised at the use of a dishonest man as the hero. And the Eastern listener or reader is surprised that such a hero would even be criticized. So there's some tension in cultures and our divide from, from the first telling of this story. And so Jesus' commentary on this is really helpful. Next verse. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. Really important contrast, light and darkness. You remember this from our Gospel of John. Those who are of the kingdom of the world who love walking in darkness because their deeds are evil, those are the sons of darkness, and those who have been made alive by Jesus are the sons of light. And so this is really saying, like, uh, Jesus is making an observation about how the world works. And he's saying the children of darkness get how their values and their kingdom work, and they use it to their benefit. Why don't the children of light understand the values of my kingdom? The Pharisees are rejecting it. Like, they know how it works in their kingdom. You Pharisees, you don't recognize how it works in God's. And he is using, just a thing that he uses often, this technique of pointing out something in how the sinful, broken world works, and finding actually a goodness in it. There's, there's something we can learn here. And so if this is true of sinful people, how much more true will it be of God or of God's people? So think of the persistent widow, right? The, the unrighteous judge, she pesters him and pesters him. He gives her justice. And the commentary is, if a wicked judge can bring justice, how much more will God? Or you earthly fathers, you know how to give good gifts to your son and you're evil. <laughs> How much more does God give good gifts? God feeds the sparrows and he clothes the flowers with splendor. How much more will he care for his children? The dishonest manager could align his pockets with money. What Jesus points to is that he recognizes something greater. Hospitality will be extended to me if I invest in people relationships. I'm not much of a businessman, but I have heard business people say that a lot of business actually does come down to the relational. And so he recognizes in this moment as he's losing all of his income, that what he needs is not more income, but he actually needs to expand to something greater, to relationships with others. And so that makes actually sense as you think about these parables of the lost sheep and the lost coin and the lost son. From the world's perspective, those things don't line up. They look foolish. You don't leave 99 safe things to rescue one, right? You don't rejoice over one little coin when you've still got nine other silver coins. And God is flipping that upside down. Jesus is saying, no, the kingdom of God is, is completely unlike the kingdom of this world. And then he says something so challenging. Verse 9, I tell you, make friends for yourself by means of unrighteous wealth. Or he gives it the word mammon. Now he's speaking to his disciples. What is Jesus saying here? Make friends for yourself by means of unrighteous mammon, unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. This is where everyone gets sideways. What does it mean when it fails? Who's they? What's unrighteous wealth? All of that. But in, to follow it up, Jesus launches into a poem about faithfulness and the truth in contrast to what he calls mammon. So look at verse 10. 
One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. One who's dishonest in a very little is also dishonest if much, in much. If you then who have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? And if you've not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters. He will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in money or mammon. He gives it a name. So just to distill this down, he's essentially saying money and wealth of this age are not the true wealth. This is not the true riches, right? True wealth, true riches are, are, are the things that are eternal. And so the takeaway is, is you live in this world, right? There is unrighteous mammon. There, there are like the realities of the finances that, that are around you, but put them to use in a way that invests in what is eternal and true. Make friends by your use of money. Now that feels weird to us because we're like, oh, I'm, am I buying friends? Is this transactional? He's just saying, use your money in a way that builds relationships, that's redemptive, that's restorative. And that is where true riches lie. The way that the faithful, or the sons of light, as he says, will use money, will be in faithful devotion and service to God and his kingdom. Well, this we know, right? We know the commandments, that, that we are to love God with our all, heart, soul, mind, body, strength, and pocketbook, right? And love our neighbor as ourselves. That's where the true riches lie. That's where the true value lies. And that is what the people of the gospel, or the people of the kingdom are called to. Very next parable, Lazarus and the rich man. It's a beautiful contrast, right? So here's, here's a rich man who failed to love his literal neighbor. Lazarus begged at his gates that he didn't even give him the crumbs from his table. And so now in the afterlife, he's in torment and in pain, and Lazarus, the poor, is welcomed into the kingdom. Verse 14. Now the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed him. They reject the ways and the values of Jesus, and Jesus then condemns them for it. Verse 15, he says, God knows your heart, and what you value is an abomination in his sight. I want to tell you a story about my life as a financial sinner and where God first started to do something in my heart where I, for the very first time I was able to see this in a different light. So I was 19 years old, living on my own, renting a house with a buddy in Washougal, Washington, actually. Uh, I was working at UPS in Portland on Swan Island. I was working the sunrise shift, delightful, 3 to 7 a.m., right? And so I would drive from Washougal to Swan Island every 2 a.m. <laughs> in my 1972 K5 Blazer that got like eight miles to the gallon. I would drive it there, and I'd drive it back. It's Monday through Friday morning, 2 in the morning cost a lot of gas money. And I was a financial sinner. Like not only had, uh, was I just bad with money? I didn't like do a budget. I just sort of like paid and just was like, what's in my pockets, what I have. And here's, you know, I just never was very thoughtful about money. But even though I was raised Christian and even though my own parents demonstrated what it looked like to give sacrificially and like, I, I never understood it. And I had never given God a dime, never given him a cent and had never even really thought about it. 
I was in church on a Sunday morning. I was down to my last $15, had it in cash in my pocket. And I had uh, an empty gas tank. It's Sunday, right? And I got to go to work at two that morning. And for some reason, God intervened in the life of a financial sinner, in the life of a selfish 19-year-old kid and began to convict me. I don't even remember what the message was about. Honestly, it might not even been about giving. Something happened that I recognized as only from God, and he asked me to give the $15. Now, listen, I know $15 is nothing, right? But that is literally all I had. I didn't have a gas card. I didn't have a credit card. I didn't have anything in my bank. I had $15 to my name scheduled to work Monday through Friday, Swan Island, K5 Blazer, bad gas mileage. And I said, Lord, how, how will I get to work? In fact, Lord, if, if you want me to give you money, don't you want me to go to work to make money so then I could give you money? He said, yeah, sure, but let's start with the 15 you got right there. And I did. I didn't really even want to. <laughs> I just knew God had told me to, and it was just so real to me. So I was like, oh, okay. I've heard stories of miracles, of evangelists traveling, like uh, Dr. Mitchell, who planted, uh, started Multnomah Bible College, used to tell these stories of driving through Canada, preaching the gospel, where he'd be on fumes, and he'd pull into a gas station and say, fill it up, and the guy would say, it's full. And I've read about the widow that cared for Elijah and her oil was replenished. So I, I was like, okay, yeah, God's economy is different than mine. All right, here's, here's my first step, the faith of giving. Here's my 15 bucks. My faith wavered that night. I told my roommate, hey man, I need five bucks for gas. I gave all my 15, immediately borrowed five more. I told you, I'm a financial sinner. Drive to the gas station, two in the morning. A guy pulls in who I don't know, he's just gassing up next to me. He goes, hey, you work at UPS, right? You're on the sunrise shift. You're in the sorting. I'm like, no, I'm an unload. He's like, oh, okay, yeah, that's where I've seen you. Do you drive that blazer to work every day? Man, gas must be crazy. You should ride with me. I'll just drive you. He picked me up and brought me home for the next six months. In fact, he didn't even mind that I slept the whole way. He just recognized me and said, hey, you know what? You don't need to buy gas money anymore. I'll take care of you. And I honestly, I was so floored by that. Not, not necessarily by his generosity, because it actually, I mean, it was generous of him, of course. It's like, God cares about me. God cares about my heart and how I think about money. God wants to teach me something about faith and motivation and repentance and money and how it works in his kingdom. And so in our family, and listen, I am not a... Uh, perfect, reformed, completely repented sinner. I continue to have to press into this and ask Jesus for strength and wisdom around how we handle our money. But it gets so easy after time when you see, like, I can give God 15 bucks and he will give me a lifetime of gas money. It doesn't always work that way, but that day it did. I can trust God with me. And so we've just become more and more generous. Our stimulus check this year, and I, listen, I don't say this to brag. I'm a financial sinner. We gave it away. I wanted it. I was like, you know, hey, we're, we're about to buy a house. It's going to need a lot of work. My truck's dying. It's going to need a lot of work. Hunting season's coming. I could always use a new shotgun or rifle. I wanted it. But I knew other people that actually needed it. And it was just not even mine is how it felt like. Karen and I were just like, it just came in and it's God's. And so now it goes back out. And so we gave it. And then someone gave us like twice the amount. It just keeps, I've just stunned constantly about the faithfulness of God and, and how he works. And it doesn't always come back in money. Sometimes he blesses us 
with more suffering and having to be on our knees in faith about where the money's going to come from. But he never fails. 30 years ago, I stepped out to trust God with my gas money, and I, I do believe God gave me my own miracle. Which really <laughs> says way more about God than me, right? $15. Does God care about the grubby cash in the jeans of a 15 or 19 year old kid? Does God need $15? It's interesting to think about these commands God gives us. The Sabbath rest, because God himself rested, and God needs no rest. The tithe, which God puts in front of us to give out of faith and out of our fruits, which he doesn't need because he owns everything. Well, this is for us. It's good for us. And so it tells me that God cares about me, about my heart about my dangerous love for money, about my indifference to generosity, about my 19 years of neglect to the mission of his church, about my callousness towards the poor and the needy, because God loves to find the lost. He cares about lost things. And he is at work actually right now in your lost ways, calling you into the goodness of his kingdom. And so, you know, one of the things we can learn from these parables is that following Jesus will force these same kinds of crises upon us, where we say, what, what do I value? And what has God called me to? And he is at work freeing our hearts from the love of money. I just want to end with a quick challenge to you. And I, I, I am this, and so I, I'm not pointing a finger at you. I'm saying this is for me, and this is for you, and this is for all of us. When it comes to our wealth, we often use phrases like wisdom or stewardship or providing for our family as justification to really hang on and retain wealth. And it's not that those things aren't true, but we need to go just maybe at one more step. Well, whose stewardship? Because it ain't mine. I don't own it. Who truly provides for my family? what does my family need most? Because what would it profit my kids to go to a great school and have a great career and have all of these things and yet forfeit their souls? You don't have to choose one or the other, right? God works in every way and calls us to different things, but he will call you to, to contrast these things against his ways. I'm being wise with my money, okay, good. Whose wisdom? Because in the wisdom of God, he who was rich for our sakes became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. The gospel is, is the ultimate undoing of our love for money and the things of this world. It is the heart of it that Jesus became poor, that you might become rich in true riches, the forgiveness of sins, eternal life, walking in his kingdom. I want to put on your, uh, just in front of you, this fall for Christmas, we're going to do something called Advent Conspiracy, which this church has done before. I'm telling you that now in advance, because I know you husbands are just already shopping for the perfect gift for your wife with, with months of preparation and deep thought, right? As you begin to think about what does Christmas mean? What does giving at Christmas look like? To, to say like the celebration of the incarnation of Jesus and the longing for his return is going to inform and transform how we give and how we receive. 
And so I just want to, that's how I want to end. And as we worship, I want to make a promise to you. And I said this three weeks ago, and I believe it to be true, that God, God is at work right here. Just like he was at work when I was 19 and had 15 bucks in my pocket, God is doing a work in you and in me and in us as a community. And we are in uncertain times. I mean, look at what we're doing right now. We have huge leadership transitions politically. We have leadership transitions continuing in our own church and our own history. We have uncertain health, uncertain economics. And God is calling us to trust in what is eternal and true. And he will do a great work here. And he will do it through you and through me, through all of us together in unity and submission to the kingdom of God. And so I just want to encourage you, hang in there. Don't lose heart. Persevere in faithfulness, whether it's given 10 cents or $10,000, whatever God calls you to give in the realm of finances, pursue faithfulness. Whatever God calls you to sacrifice relationally and to give up for the lost things that he loves, this is what Jesus calls us to. And I promise you that the Lord's house will be full. God will have his way. And we will see this house filled with lost things and lost sinners and the glory of the gospel of the kingdom of God. And I'm excited about what he's doing today and what he wants to do tomorrow. Amen. Let's pray. Father, as we worship you, as we worship you both in the spirit that you've given us and the truth of your word. And we come before you in humility and repentance. We ask the question of ourselves, will we trust Jesus? Help us to trust your son, Father, who you love and who you've given to us. May he be enough for us in every area, we pray. Amen.